Please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. We will continue our study of Paul's call for us to dress in the full armor of God. Probably take us one or two more weeks to get through these 10 verses. Um, We're looking at texts, and in one sense, they're very familiar. I'm sure the armor of God and its six pieces of, of armor are well familiar. These, these um, are often the subjects taught in children's church, VBS, and we run the danger of um, complacency. They're so familiar we can move through them, and I think they're profound. So as you turn to Ephesians 6, as you get out in the insert, I'd like to begin our time by reading the 10 verses, uh, Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, of a word of prayer, and we will begin. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly. And to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I'm an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Lord God, I confess that all too often I do not take preparation for war seriously enough. And so I pray that as we study this passage, you would impress upon us the weight, the seriousness, the significance of this battle, that you would call us to arms and to act, that we would obey your command and put on your armor again and again and again, that we would prepare for war, that we would engage in war, and that we would battle faithfully with the power that you supply. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul lists six pieces of armor, and we're going to look at the first three this morning. And my goal is in looking at it is to give you practical instruction on how these pieces can be put on. And the command is clear, put on the armor of God, put on the full armor of God, put on the full armor of God. And yet, I don't know how many of us could answer, well, have we? Did I put on the belt of, belt of truth today? Did I take up the breastplate of righteousness, or did I not? How would I know? Once we get past the imagery, once we get past the colorful terms, what does it actually mean? Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll move slowly through this. Now, our text this morning connects with what came previously before. You see the stand, therefore. 
And what Paul is saying is because of everything he said in verses 1 through 13, I mean 1 through 12, we are to respond by putting on this armor. He, he starts his argument by giving the command to prepare to stand, to put on the armor, and then he gives us the why. And so let's just review briefly. Stand, therefore. Therefore what? Well, because of what he's just said. And that is first that our warfare is defensive. Again, the call is to stand, to stand firm, to withstand. This isn't about taking new ground, securing new territory. This is about holding a line. The picture is of close quarters combat against a wily, alert, cunning enemy who at any moment will launch attack after attack after attack. That's the picture. We're engaged in a struggle which will culminate with the Lord Jesus Christ's return and his victory. But in the meantime, we're playing a defensive game. We're playing a defensive game. 1 Peter 5.8 warns us, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And Paul, when he gathered with the elders in Ephesus, warned them, I know, he says in Acts 20, Verse 29 through 30, that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remember that for three years, I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. So the first point, this war that we're called to fight is, is defensive. The attack is coming to us. You don't go to it. It's coming to you whether you're ready or not. You will be attacked whether you prepare or not. So therefore, prepare. Secondly, our warfare is personal. Uh, Our warfare is personal. It's the warfare over your soul, your faithfulness, your conduct. The battle is over you. Satan's looking to devour people. Um, That word wrestling. We do not wrestle. It can also mean struggle. And the picture is close quarters. Someone's getting in close to you. Someone's attacking you. You need to withstand them. You need to fight them as they attack you. This means the spiritual warfare engaged in is not about reclaiming our nation. It's, it's not about winning elections. It's really about whether Jeremy Kidder will be a faithful husband this afternoon, a good father whether I'll trust in the Lord today or trust in my own wisdom, whether I'll live by faith or live by something else day by day. That's the attack. That's the battle. It's personal. The Apostle Paul also warns the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 11.3, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That's the battle. Will you have a sincere devotion to Christ or will your thoughts be led astray? Will you trust in God and his word and act upon it? Will you be led astray? That's the battle. It's defense. It's personal. Third, our full armor is from God. This is important because you're not gritting your teeth and getting your own determination. You're not coming up with your own strategies. You're not coming up with your own armor and weapons. God is supplying them. This is good news because the enemy is strong. The enemy is legion. The enemy is wise and wily, diabolical, coordinated, 
And without God giving us tools, we'd get slaughtered. We'd get mowed down. And so because the attack's coming to you, whether you like it or not, because it's personal, because the enemy is powerful, and because God has given you his armor, his weapons. And we'll see that that's not just a figure of speech. That is literally what Paul means in the coming verses as we look through it. Put it on. And you can imagine if you're going to a barracks and telling soldiers in any moment, a powerful coordinated attack will be coming. Get your gear on. Get your bulletproof vest on. Make sure your guns are loaded. Wake up, get out of bed. How foolish it would be to just languish and I'll get up in a few minutes. And spiritually, I think that's what we're in danger of doing all the time. We don't know when the evil day will be. Paul, Paul spoke about withstanding in the evil day. These days we live in are evil. Um, Paul makes that clear in uh, Ephesians 5, 18. Do not get drunk with wine for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. No, sorry, the verse before that. Verse 16, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. These are evil days. When Paul mentions withstanding in the evil day, I think he has, within those days, there'll be heightened moments of temptation and trial. You don't know when they're coming. Most enemies don't announce in advance their attack. So the only solution, the only possible strategy is to be ready at all times. If you think to yourself, I'll wait till the attack comes to put the armor on, you're going down, my friend. You will not stand. Paul is calling the Ephesians to stand now, to prepare now for a battle that is coming. And our goal, finally, is to persevere and stay standing. That's victory. Victory is to stay standing. Or when you get knocked down to get back up. That's victory. That's triumph. Hold the line. Don't get knocked down. If you do get knocked down, get up. Remain standing. Or put it another way, the author of Hebrews 3 says this in verses 12 to 14. Take care, my brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if, indeed, we hold our original confidence firm to the end. I think that's another way of saying, if we stand firm. So that's why this matters. The enemy is great. It's coming to you whether you like it or not. It's a powerful enemy, coordinated enemy, global. And then the good news is God has not told us to figure it out for ourselves. He's given us armor. He's given us weapons. And you can imagine the presumption, the folly, the hubris at saying, I don't need that. I'll take care of it myself. And with that, he then goes into the command of putting on the armor. Now, The goal of standing has occurred three times before, but here it shows up as an imperative verb. Verse 13, no, sorry, verse um, 14. Stand, therefore. That's the ultimate goal that we're trying to do. We're trying to stay standing. That's the struggle. And then he tells us how we're going to achieve that. And he's narrowing down his focus again and again. He started out back in verse 10. Be strong in the Lord, namely, and in the strength of his might. What does that mean? It means putting on his full armor. What does that mean? Now we're going to take it piece by piece. And what's remarkable is in these first three pieces, each one of them links with a text in Isaiah. Each one of them is antecedent scripture using these types of, this type of imagery. And so when 
Paul says this is God's armor. He means it. What you're going to see in all three of these passages of Isaiah is that in every instance, it's God himself who's wearing it, God himself who's using it to war. And you can imagine the encouragement to the Ephesians, the encouragement to us that the, the very armor God uses is in, in his war is offered to us. So the first piece is therefore having put, um, fastened on or girded around your waist the belt of truth. So stay here in, a, in Ephesians, but keep your, oh, keep your finger here in, in Ephesians and turn to Isaiah chapter 11. I'll take a few minutes to look at this. Um, in Isaiah chapter 11 is a prophecy about the coming root from the stump of Jesse. This is the Messiah. This is David's greater son. I'd like to read um, verses 1 through 9. You'll see the reference here. Well, just 1 through 5. We'll read 1 through 5. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So it's a Jesseite, descendant of Jesse. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. So now we've learned what is his, his empowerment. And then we'll see what he does. He shall judge. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, which I think is a link to Psalm 2. Break them with a rod like a potter's vessel. And with his breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins or truthfulness the belt of his loins. So just pause and and what are we seeing here? We're seeing a prediction of the coming Messiah, the descendant of Jesse and David will come. He'll be given divine empowerment by the spirit of God. And he will judge the world. He will judge the peoples. And then we're told how he will judge them. He will judge them in righteousness, not simply by what he sees, but with righteousness, with equity, and with vengeance. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And then he's said to be dressed a particular way. Now, one of the commentators in Isaiah uh, made this comment. I think he's right. Alex Matier that when God is, is seen to be dressed in this fashion, the clothing, it both indicates his character and what he intends to do. You dress for the job you're going to accomplish. And so here, and here's your blank, this belt, this belt of truth, is worn by the Messiah. And it speaks both to his character, through and through, his truth. And the judgment he gives will be true. He's good at judge, and what we're being emphasized here is that his judge will be right and true. It'll be according to truth. It'll be according to righteousness. And so for the Israelites, this was a great hope. We still live in the hope that the Messiah will come again. He will judge the nations in truth and righteousness. What Paul's telling the Ephesians is the very clothing and raiment that the Messiah will wear when he judges the nations is given to us. This is what it means for it to be the armor of God. God's armor. It's the armor he uses. We're to use it as well. So turn, turn back to Ephesians. What does that mean then? 
Well, first, before we look at exactly what the belt is, I want to briefly look at what it accomplishes. Um, you may know this already, but in, in Jesus' day in the first century in Palestine, you would wear loose-fitting robes. They're comfortable, but they did not allow for ease of swift movement. And so if you wanted to move quickly, you wanted to prepare for action, you would tie them up around you so that you had that type of flexibility. Jesus makes this clear in uh, Luke 12.35, where he says, Stay dressed for action, so we gird up your loins, tie up your waistband, keep vigilant, and your lamps burning. And so I think the imagery can readily be made of someone wearing clothing that could trip you up. Um, you're not going to be able to dance around and you know, sting like a bumblebee when you've got a robe on that you're tripping up over. And so the picture is pretty clear. The belt of truth is going to enable us to respond swiftly, with agility. And in war, you need that. You need lightning reflexes. You hear the rustling, and you're oh, looking over there, zoomed in. You cannot afford lethargy. You can't afford to be tripped up. So, so what, that's what it accomplishes. The belt is going to give us that swift response action in time. What is it? Now, I think the, the easy answer is, oh, it's the Bible, it's God's truth. Isn't this truth? That's sort of right. But I think there's two problems with viewing the belt of truth simply as God's truth. The first is, if the belt of truth is referencing Scripture, then what do we make of um, verse 17? The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Seem a little redundant. And, and secondly, in the passage in Isaiah, it's, it's not God's word. God's word shows up in the passage when he strikes them with the rod of his mouth. That's consistent with the picture of God's word as a weapon and a sword. But we saw, I think, that the Messiah girding his belt with righteousness and with truth is indicating of his character and how he acts and how he will conduct his judgment. So I'm going to suggest to you that this belt is God's truth consistently lived through us. We put on the belt of truth when we live in accordance with truth. It speaks to our actions. This makes putting on the belt of truth far more active. It's you and me living out God's truth, living in keeping with God's truth. Let me, let me try to unpack that a little bit. Now, the first point, if you'll turn to Hebrews 5, is that knowing truth protects us from deception. And knowing truth is a prerequisite. In that sense, it starts with God's word. Our hearts are filled with lies and folly. Our world is not a source of truth. If we're going to live truth, we need to be feeding on it, drinking it, steeping our minds in it. Remember, demons know all sorts of truth. They just hate it and don't practice it. James tells us that even the demons believe and tremble. I don't think, I think if you simply stop at knowing things, you haven't put the belt on the way Paul envisions it. But we'll start by looking at the necessity of knowing truth, okay? And if in Hebrews 5, the author of Hebrews wants to go on talking about Melchizedek. And he anticipates that this will be challenging for his readers. He hasn't used enough illustrations or video clips. And so he says, about this, we have much to say, verse 11, but it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. And now we're about to get a contrast, a sketch of the weak and immature and the mature. And I want you to notice what um, characterizes the mature. 
and it's going to center on the axes of truth. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. Immature people don't know their Bibles very well. And that's okay. Acknowledge that and get better, get stronger, get more mature. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. You get that? Maturity comes when you're constantly holding up life to God's word. When you're, you're constantly, what's true, what's good, what's right. And so that is a necessary piece of putting this belt on. It's not go follow your heart, be the real you. It's, it's let truth saturate your mind your heart and then live in keeping with it live it out live in accordance with the truth listen to how uh, john in his third epistle writes and you'll get the idea of how truth and conduct fit together first john chapter one is the only chapter verse three and four i rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth as indeed you are walking in the truth I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. What's it mean to put on the belt of truth? I think it means that your conduct is in keeping. You've you've been feeding on truth. You've been meditating on truth. And then you're walking in truth. And I want you to think this thing through. I don't know if you've had the experience of being caught in a period of time where you're being unfaithful, being half-hearted to the Lord, and then a call to action happens. Temptation comes, how sluggish, how lethargic, you're you're tripping over yourself spiritually because there is contradiction in you. You you haven't been living faithfully, and now you're not ready when the battle comes. Paul is saying we put on this belt when we, just like the Messiah, who all of his actions, all of his dealings, all of his words are in keeping with truth, when we live that way, it protects us and prepares us for battle. The second point. So knowing truth protects us from deception, but living truth protects us from hypocrisy. It protects us from that disjunct internally, which can make us impotent in our battle. When we know our heart is fickle, when we know we've been unfaithful, it's so easy to say, well, I compromised over there. I guess I'll compromise over here as well. Conversely, if you've been fighting hard, if you've been living faithfully and truthfully, it's going to make you equipped to respond quickly. When the error comes, when the lies of your heart come, the truth that you've been thinking and speaking and living will identify the lie or the half-truth. So often our hearts give us these half-truths or exaggerations, and you need to be able to spot it and see it and say, "That's, that's not quite true. So fasten on the belt of truth. Um, It starts with God's word, but it's got to permeate into us, and we need to walk in that truth. This is far more active than simply having a Bible or a Bible app. Walk in truth. Fasten on the belt of truth. Second, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Turn to Isaiah 59. Here, it's not the Messiah, but God himself who is wearing this breastplate. It's a terrible passage uh, about God's judgment and wrath. Isaiah 52, 
No, no, not 52, 59, sorry. I'm getting ahead of myself. Isaiah 59. Um, and the context is God is seeing the corruption of his people, and he tells them he comes to judge. He comes to settle the score. Look at verse 14. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him, that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay wrath for his adversaries and repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render payment, so they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind, uh, which the wind of the Lord drives, and a redeemer will come from Zion. So God is telling his people he's coming to judge them for their injustice, for their wickedness, and then we're told what he's putting on to do it. And again, this speaks to his character and which part of his attributes will be active in this activity. And we recognize some of the elements of the armor that we have in Ephesians here. But a breastplate of righteousness. And again, God's own righteous activity is what will bring judgment. You may have heard this before, but the worst news sinful men can hear is that God is good. Think about that. Because what would a good and God, good and righteous God, do in response to sinful people? He would judge. He would punish. He would set things straight. And so in one sense, the, the worst news you can hear as a sinful human, as someone who is corrupt inwardly, is that God is good Holy, 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 through and through. And so God's righteousness is what he's wearing as he comes to, to render this judgment. Okay? So your blank here, back in, uh, you can turn back to Ephesians now, is God wears this breastplate to judge. God wears this breastplate to judge. So what does it represent then? Now, here, again, is where I may challenge your thinking, and I'll try to explain why I th I'm going to argue what I'm saying. Some people have argued the breastplate of righteousness is Christ's imputed righteousness. This is the righteousness we receive when we become believers, when you turn in faith to Jesus Christ, and you absolutely do receive a righteousness from Christ when you turn to him in faith. That's true. I don't think that's what Paul has in mind here. I don't think so. I'll, I'll try to justify why I say that, but here's... Here's your blank for what I think it is. The breastplate is our conduct created in Christ Jesus. It's our conduct created in Christ Jesus. Now, once again, there is an inseparable link between that imputed righteousness, the credited righteousness, the gift alien righteousness that we did not perform with this righteousness of our conduct, but I think the focus is on our conduct, our living. Let me, let me try to explain why that is. Now, first blank this does, it requires God's imputed righteousness. And by imputed, I mean credited, gifted, a righteousness we did not perform. 
a righteousness which is primarily legal. The law regards us as just because Christ lived on our behalf, a sinless life, died for us, paid the penalty of our sins. He received the punishment for our sins. We receive the benefit of his righteous life. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. I don't think that's what Paul has in view here. It's a prerequisite. You can't put on the breastplate of righteousness if you don't start with this imputed righteousness. But let me show you how this works in Ephesians 2. This is the flow of Paul's thought. Ephesians 2, verse 8. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now there's your imputed righteousness. There's your free gift of grace and forgiveness where we're credited with Christ's righteousness. But keep reading. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, let me show you what I think really seals the deal on this. Turn to chapter 4. And don't forget the language he's been using. We're to put on something. I wonder where we've heard that before. Well, this is the model that Paul gives for spiritual growth and change. Remember, put off the old man, be renewed in your mind, put on the new man. Now, let's read that. Ephesians 4, verse 20. Again, remember, I'm arguing the breastplate of righteousness is our right conduct created in Christ Jesus. It's a fruit of our justification. It's a fruit of our salvation. But it's something we actually do perform and live out in life. So look at this, verse 20. That is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in the truth as the truth is in Jesus to put off the old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self. And what's the new self like? Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. What characterizes the new self? Righteousness. And this is, as we're putting it on, the, the, the righteousness of our practice. Or if you want to use the, it's the economic righteousness. It's the righteousness we perform the right doings, the right living. We put on, and it's created after the likeness of God in true or truth and righteousness and holiness. It starts with truth. Remember back in uh, verse 21, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. So here, truth and righteousness come together as what we put on, how we are to grow in living, imperfectly, not without error and failings, weekly. But as Christians, we were made anew, born again, so that we could live more and more like this. I think that's what Paul has in view when he tells us to put it on. It's the same lingo of put off, put on, renew. Paul links truth and righteousness there. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, put them on. So the breastplate, I'm arguing then, is our conduct created in Christ Jesus. It absolutely requires God's imputed righteousness. But here's your blank. It is the fruit of our putting on Christ. It is the fruit of our putting on Christ. This means then, I'm arguing, is that our present right living protects us in future trials. If you pause and think about it, I think that'll make sense to you. If you have a habit 
of mortifying the flesh, if you have a habit of putting off the old man, if you have a habit of growing in Christ's likeness, when trials come, you're ready. You're protected. If you have a habit of compromise, lukewarmness, half-heartedness, when that temptation comes, you're going to be a sitting duck. In Romans chapter 6, Paul puts it this way, and I'll switch the imagery a little bit. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, your slaves are the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? So get this. Whatever you present your body, your members, your hands, your feet, your tongue, your mouth, to serve, will, it, will master you, either sin or righteousness. Well, if you've been presenting your body to sin regularly, and then it's time to act. The enemy's attacking. You may find, and I'll, I'll switch the metaphor here, that you're, you, you ever try to get up quickly and you find your leg was asleep too late? I have. You get up and, and you just sort of keel over. Well, your, your leg had fallen asleep. Your hand had fallen asleep. Here, something worse than that takes place. You've been presenting your body as members of sin. We tell ourselves, I'll stop when I want. I can stop when I want. And then you find out, no, you can't. And you find weakness and apathy and frailty in limbs that should be vigorous and vital. Right living, growing in Christ now, protects you in future trials. You can't just think when the trial comes, then I'll get serious. When the trials come, then I'll stop playing games. You've got to stop playing games now. You've got to start living right now if you're going to hope to live right when the trial comes. Now, it's the fruit of our justification. It's the result of Christ's righteousness being in us. It's created in Christ Jesus, but we do it. It's not a legal righteousness. It's, a, it's, a, it's an actual fact righteousness. I mean, the Psalms speak of this. The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness. We get all uncomfortable largely because we only use righteousness in terms of salvation. But I think all David's saying is the Lord has rewarded me according to the fact that I'm innocent in this matter. I've done what is right, and I'm being falsely accused, and so God has vindicated me according to my rightness in this matter. And so Paul's call is far more active than sitting back and just saying, I'm confident that I'm righteous in Christ. Paul's telling you to put something on, to do something, to put on God's armor. God in the new birth has enabled us to live righteously, not sinlessly, but righteously. In fact, he bore, bore us anew. We were born again. Unto good works, chapter 2, verse 10. We're to put on the new man created in Christ Jesus in the image of him. In the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And so Paul is saying, do that. Which means our lives are holistic. We tend, if you're like me, you tend to have certain sins, certain struggles that you're more concerned about. Uh, certainly public sins get my attention more, things that other people notice. And so I may have two or three matters that I am very much attentive to that I want to grow in. But if I'm lethargic and compromising in other areas, it's going to weaken me over here. We are holistic. We don't get to pick and choose where we're going to obey God. We're either fighting, putting on the new man, putting off the old man, growing in righteousness, or we're sitting ducks. 
So understand the first two pieces of armor are active. You are putting on the belt by filling yourself with truth and living according to the truth, walking in truth with fidelity and faithfulness. The second is your conduct is righteous, is growing in what is right. This is what protects you from trial and attack. This is what protects you from trial and attack. Our third piece of of equipment is having put on the readiness of the gospel of peace. Having put on the readiness of the gospel of peace. Again, we have another Isaiah reference. Turn to Isaiah 52. By the way, isn't it remarkable how much Paul assumes his readers know their Old Testament? He doesn't say in Isaiah. He just makes the reference and assumes they're tracking with him. They probably didn't have their own copies of Scripture. In Isaiah 52, we read about the Lord's coming salvation. Now let's pick it up. Um, Ooh, in verse 3. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing, their rulers wail, declares the Lord. And continually all the day my name is despised, therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore in that day they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice together. They sing for joy for eye to eye. They see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing your waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm. Therefore, the eyes of all the nation, before all the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. So here, the Lord's servant, and I'll explain why I think it's the servant, announces that the Lord has returned to and redeemed his people. The Lord's servant announces that the Lord has returned to and redeemed his people. That's the good news. The good news is that he's returned, right? The voice of the watchman break forth in singing. Verse 9, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. He has returned to his people. That's the good news. So God anticipates a messenger who's going to say, your God's returned to you. He's he's come again to you. He's redeemed you. It's a message of peace. And our word for gospel simply means good news. So look again at verse 7, which is what he's referencing. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, gospel, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Now, If you keep reading, this flows right into the beginning of the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And I want you to notice the connection of thought. Look at verse 10 of chapter 52. The Lord has bared his holy arm. Look at 53.1. 
Who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? There's a connection of thought. God says he's going to send a messenger. And we find out the messenger is the one who will be crushed and stricken and smitten. Look, look at, just keep reading, 52, 13. Behold my servant. Now that servant, there's a number of servant songs in Isaiah. We know who this is. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond resemblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him for that which has not been told them and they see and that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? What if they heard? I believe this message. Here comes one, the servant of the Lord, announcing peace, announcing the return of the Lord, announcing his redemption. They don't believe him. They crush and kill him. Well, that's exactly what Christ has done. If you go back to Ephesians, Paul actually connects these two ideas earlier in Ephesians chapter 3, 2, chapter 2. Remember the two contrasts in chapter 2. In the second, he talks about our former alienation. I'll show you Um, verse 13 in chapter 2. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So the good news of peace was accomplished in Christ's flesh on the cross. Keep going. It's broken down in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility, abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he may create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And here's the link. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So Paul has already united Christ's ministry as a proclaimer of the gospel of peace and Christ's accomplishment of that reconciliation on the cross. Just as Isaiah 52 and 53 unite this. One is coming who will announce peace. One is coming who will announce your God reigns. He's returned. He's redeemed you. And who has believed our report? And then you would go right into Isaiah 53. This is the armor of God. This is how the Messiah equipped himself. As he preached the gospel. Um, so what does that mean then for us? Quickly. Because we will sing our final song. First, embrace the reality that you also are God's messenger. As the Lord's arms and feet, as his body, we continue the ministry he began. Turn, turn to Second Corinthians 5. Second Corinthians 5. Last, last passage I'll ask you to turn to. Other than Ephesians. 2 Corinthians 5 makes it clear that one of the results of being born again, born anew, is God has recreated you and he's given you a new commission, a new identity. The verse everyone likes to quote here, that all things are new, right? I want you to look at it in the context in which it occurs. 2 Corinthians 5, starting at verse 16. From now on, therefore... We regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no more. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, understand in context, 
this newness is fundamentally about the way we see things. We used to look at Jesus one way. We don't look at him that way anymore. Why? Because if anyone's in Christ, all things have become new. This is fundamentally about the way we see ourselves, the way we see the world, the way we interpret reality. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We are ambassadors. We've been entrusted with this commission, this word and ministry of reconciliation. Putting on the the shoes, shodding your feet with readiness of the gospel of peace It's another way of saying, remember your identity. Remember your mission and your commission. You want to be prepared for battle? Remember you're a soldier. Remember you have work to do. Remember you have good news to announce. If you forget that, if you think you're here simply to enjoy yourself, simply to do your thing, you're going to forget you're a soldier. You're an ambassador. You have a ministry of reconciliation. You have a word of reconciliation. The next blank, the goodness of our message prompts us to speak. That's the readiness. If, if you can bear this in mind, what good news? The good news, you deserve wrath, hell, and judgment. I got good news for you. God has made peace. God has re- offered redemption. God has sent his son to die in your place, to do what you could not do. He freely offers forgiveness. He will adopt you into his family. You will reign with him. He will give you his spirit, give you his armor, give you his people. That's good news. And if we believe it, and if it's on our mind, we'll be ready to open our mouths to speak. Part of the battle we're fighting is, will we speak the words of life to those around us? Part of the battle is, will we open our mouth I believe, therefore, I spoke, or will we stay silent? And so one of the ways we're ready for the battle is to be preaching the gospel to ourselves and others. Remember, we're ambassadors, and that letting the good news prompt us to speak. Paradoxically, point D here, we are to be prepared to announce the gospel of peace even as we engage in intense and grueling warfare. We are to be prepared to preach the gospel of peace even as we engage in intense and grueling warfare. I I know this is true because Paul himself, you think, Paul, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Look what he wants them to pray for him just a few verses later in Ephesians 6. Look at verse 19, Ephesians 6, 19. This This is the nature of spiritual warfare. Having us to shrink back in fear to be ashamed, to close our mouths. And Paul needed prayer. Pray for me also that the words may be given me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the ministry of the gospel for which I'm ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. The apostle Paul was asking the Ephesian church, can you guys pray for me? I need boldness. 
I need to speak when I ought to speak. Now, I take comfort from that because if Paul needed prayer, then when I feel ashamed, when I feel embarrassed, I'm in good company. But also, if Paul needed prayer, you, you and I need to take this seriously as well. We need to have these shoes on our feet, which is, I think a manner of saying we need to embrace the reality. First and foremost, you're a herald, you're a messenger, you're an ambassador. And this good news by which you are saved, God has given you to speak to others as well. And Satan wants to keep you silent. He wants to keep you conflicted and compromised. He wants to keep you straying from truth. The battle is that we let truth permeate through us. The battle is that we do live righteous lives. The battle is that we do speak the good news of peace to a world around us. And we're through three pieces of the armor. We have three more to go, and then we have prayer. We'll close our time now. I'll call the worship team up. We'll sing our closing song. We have the armor of God. We have Jesus Christ. We can put him on, and it is enough.